Infectious disease models can be used to help us understand the spread of an infection through populations. In response to the COVID-19 pandemic, this type of modeling has been one component contributing to the evidence base and seeking to help inform public health decision-making. In this episode of Spider Presents, we explore a notable use of mathematical models of infectious disease dynamics in the UK during January-July 2021, as we move through the steps set out in the roadmap out of lockdown. This is Spider Presents, a series produced by the Spider Podcast Hub. My name is Laura Guzman. And mine is Ed Hill. Today we welcome Matt Keeling, as well as being a professor in the Mathematics Institute and School of Life Sciences at the University of Warwick. Matt is also the director of the Spider Group. Matt has research interests in epidemiology, evolution, and ecology. As part of his work, Matt has been a member of the Joint Committee on Vaccination and Immunization, the JCBI, and the Scientific Pandemic Influenza Group on Modeling, SPIM, which was an operational subgroup of the Scientific Advisory Group for Emergencies, SAGE, during the course of the COVID-19 pandemic in the UK. For recognition of his advisory work, Matt was awarded an OBE in 2021. In this episode, we will be discussing the research article, Comparison of the 2021 COVID-19 Roadmap Projections Against Public Health Data in England. This work was published in Nature Communications in August 2022. Welcome, Matt, to Spider Presents. Can you tell us about the contributions made by Spider as part of the modeling response to the COVID-19 pandemic, both in the UK and abroad? Yeah, so SPIDER was heavily involved in a lot of the work that went on through SPIMO, so, so the Scientific Pandemic Influenza Modelling Group, the operational group that, that fed into SAGE. Um, there was four main academics, so that's, that's myself, Louise Dyson, Mike Tilsley and Ed Hill, all of whom were sort of regular contributors to SPIM. Um, in addition, there were a number of uh, postdocs and PhD students that also fed into the work. And in total, um, this was through the Juniper Modelling Consortium, uh, which was a network of seven universities, all of which were, were interested and, and used mathematical modelling as a tool to try and understand what was going on. And in total, we um, submitted hundreds of different uh, sets of results that went through to SPIM that tried to explain both what was happening at the time, but also forecast what might happen uh, in the future, thinking about different scenarios. In addition to that, there was a, um, a, a body of work that was um, done in collaboration with the Kemri Wellcome Trust Centre in Khalifi, Kenya, which was trying to understand the dynamics that was happening in Kenya. So in some way, that was an interesting counterpoint to what we were seeing in the UK. They were dealing with a situation in a very different population with very different amounts of data. But again, it was similar types of questions of could we understand what was happening at the time and could we see what was going to happen moving forward into the future? Um, so I think as, as a whole, I think the work that was done by Spider and how that fared into Juniper was absolutely sort of key to, as part of the scientific advice that moved things forward throughout the pandemic. One of the particular contributions made was as part of modelling to help inform um, 
our movement kind of out of lockdown in early 2021 as we moved through the steps laid out in a roadmap out of lockdown. Uh, I was wondering if you'd be able to provide the listeners some context of the epidemiological situation at that time. And then in terms of this study, which is then like kind of a retrospective look back, what the specific aims were of the study? The work came about as part of, of the information that was feeding into SPIAM and, and then to SAGE. And we'd been through one wave in um, March, April of 2020. There was then a second wave that started in sort of September of 2020, but really peaked in January of 2021 and resulted in a lockdown, second lockdown at the time. Um, and once cases had started to drop and hospitalizations were getting down to a, a level that the system could cope with, the real question was how did we move out of this lockdown in a way that didn't overwhelm the NHS, didn't result in a, in a, a large third wave. And so there was a number of different suggestions about how we could move out. So one of the pieces of work that we did in um, early sort of February, March time was thinking about the different timings that we could use to, to relax the controls that we had. We'd now got vaccination available. So vaccines were there to try and limit the amount of spread and to limit the, the severity of disease, especially in the elderly and vulnerable. But we realised that we couldn't just switch off all controls. That would lead to, to another large-scale wave. And so the question was sort of, how did we relax things slowly um, such that we could get back to a situation where there was very there were no restrictions, really, on, on social mixing? Um, and so that was done through a series of steps. Step one was, was a sort of a small change with schools going back and some shops reopening. And then we moved all the way through to step four, which was the final sort of phase where all controls were, were lifted. And so the, the roadmap really was a, a, a question of how we did that as efficiently as possible. And it was done these four steps each of which had um, about five weeks between them so that there was enough time to analyse what had happened in the previous step and make projections going forward. So there was a, a series of, of roadmap documents that were generated by myself and individuals within Spider that looked at what we estimated might happen as each of these steps occurred, did we think there was going to be a large-scale outbreak? Did we think that whatever happened could be controllable? So that was really the sort of background to it, trying to sort of give confidence that each of these steps could occur without there being severe problems. How did you investigate these questions that you found uh, when building this roadmap? We began to think about sort of modelling COVID infections back in January, February of 2020. So in a lot of ways, the model had sort of evolved as things had progressed and as we learned more about the infection. So we'd gone from having relatively simple models that, that captured the dynamics, but had things in like age structure and symptomatic and asymptomatic individuals. As we moved through the outbreak, 
we realized that variants came in, so that then increased the complexity of the model again. Then as we moved into December time, we got the vaccine, so we had to then sort of put another element in where we sort of captured the impact of vaccination. And so all this is built in a large-scale mathematical model which takes the mechanisms that we know about, it takes the underlying biology, translates that into, into mathematics, allowing us to project forwards under different scenarios. And then that model is matched to the available data by fine-tuning all the parameters within it. One element was, was taking this model, which has been fit on a, a weekly basis to the evolving data, the other part of it was thinking about what type of scenarios would happen under each step of the roadmap. So, you know, if we had step two where, you know, shops reopened, well, what would that do to people's mixing? What would that do to their behaviour? And I think in a lot of ways, that was probably one of the key things that we learned as we went through this process was that... Um, people's behaviour was actually much more complicated than we'd initially thought. So, you know, our assumption was as soon as they opened the pubs, well, you know, people had, people had been sort of at home, unable to go out and socialise. We, we expected there to be a mass change in behaviour on the day with people making up for lost time. And I think what we, what we learned was that actually people were far more cautious so I think there was there was a learning process that went in thinking about what these scenarios were. So part of it was the mathematics. So part of it was was building the model and, and allowing it to run forwards and fitting it to the available data. But the other part was, was the epidemiology, really, uh, thinking about what might happen to the population and how they would react to each of these changes. So you mentioned behavioural response being a important consideration and perhaps one that's kind of highlighted there was uncertainty around that through doing the various modeling for each step of the roadmap and then kind of retrospectively looking back and how that compared to what actually occurred what would you say were there any other surprising outcomes let's say so i think one of the the key things i mean one of the reasons that we did this was you know firstly that the group had put in an awful lot of work over an entire year um, to generate these type of results. So it, it, was, it was interesting to put this back into the public domain, thinking about sort of how well we'd done for each of the roadmap steps. Um, I think in terms of surprising, I think, yeah, yeah as, as I said, the behavioural aspect, I think, is, is very important. Uh, I think we still don't have a good handle on, on how quickly people start going back to normal behaviour. Um, I think there's there's some been some really interesting questions about trying to understand vaccines. So when I started my my sort of career doing doing mathematical modelling of infectious diseases, a, a vaccine was something that protected you, and it was very much a sort of an on-off switch. Um, so you were either protected or not. What we've really learned during COVID is just how complicated that is, and we're now in a situation where people have had three, four doses of different vaccines at different times together with past infection. And so I think there's, there's this huge high dimensional complexity that is very, very difficult to capture. I think I've, I've also been surprised by 
just how uncertain and unstable the dynamics are that as we try and look at these retrospective fits if you get any one part even slightly wrong it throws off the the whole future dynamics very very quickly and part of this is because it's it's an exponential growth process so if you get that exponential wrong it grows either much faster or much slower and that has long-term knock-on effects. So it's not something that, that stabilizes and a small error dissipates over time. It's actually something where small errors grow. And so I, I think those are the, probably the, the two things, how much we really need to learn about vaccination and how it protects both sort of instantaneously sort of once you've had the vaccine, but also over longer terms of how it declines. And then the questions about sort of actually fitting the model to the data and just how unstable it is and how sensitive it, sensitive it is to getting small things incorrect. With this being a retrospective analysis and moving forwards, what in your view are important considerations with regards to pandemic preparedness and use of mathematical modeling? And have these views been altered in any way given the learnings from this study? Um, it's a good question because it's something that everyone is now thinking about is is how do we prepare for the next pandemic. I think one of the things that's been key is what making sure we have the right data coming in and thinking about good ways in which you can make the mathematical models fit to the data. So it's very easy to construct an incredibly complicated model. Um, it's easy to put all the biology in, but unless you get the, the parameters right, unless you get the numbers right that go into these models, then it becomes very difficult to actually make accurate predictions. So as I said before, the models is incredibly sensitive to getting all the numbers right. And if some of those are out, you, your long-term behavior is wrong. So I think one of the things we need to think about moving forward over the next maybe five, 10 years in terms of pandemic preparedness, is really how we develop a pipeline from the data that's available through um, being able to sort of abstract that and release certain amounts to the academic community through to how you actually fit any available model to the data into actually generating uh, mathematical models that are robust and accurate to give you short or medium term projections. I think there's also a lot of work that's, that needs to be done that thinks about what you can do in the very, very short term. So when you see an outbreak of whatever disease X is that comes along next, how quickly can you learn enough to be able to do very, very short term models to suggest, you know, is this going to be something like SARS-1, which Although that spread globally, it didn't uh, affect a large number of people. Uh, there was a fairly limited spread. Or is it going to be something like SARS-CoV-2 that has spread worldwide and is persisting? So I think being able to understand what you need to measure very, very early on in a pandemic to be able to place you in different categories of the types of control that you need I think is going to be very important. There's a there's a government and a worldwide plan called the first 100 days, which is about how, how you react in that first 100 days, developing vaccines within that time period, developing drugs. And 
I mean, that's that's not something I'm directly involved in, but I think mathematical modelling has a, a big role in that to think about how those vaccines should be deployed optimally once they're actually developed. So with with the COVID outbreak, the vaccines took around a year to be developed, and that was that was phenomenally fast compared to what we've seen before. They're now talking about reducing that by a third, so having vaccines available within 100 days. And that's brilliant. But the question is, who do you give it to? What do you do to actually try and control this outbreak as quickly as possible? And what we don't want to do is just assume that everything we've learned from the COVID outbreak is going to translate to the next outbreak. So COVID has been very particular in terms of who got infected. It's it's really been an infection that's where severity is concentrated in the elderly and in the most vulnerable. Uh, but the next pandemic might be very different. It may be in, in children, it may be in, in middle-aged adults, like the uh, 1918 flu pandemic. So it could be that different sectors of society need protection. And so one of the questions is, is how quickly you can actually understand that type of information and how quickly, easily you can um, enfold that within the, the modelling frameworks. And a personal observation from... And the past couple of years, kind of seeing the proliferation of different data streams, in a, in essence, kind of increasing amount of like genomics, the wastewater surveillance, like community infection surveys, etc. So to try to have this pipeline, where given these potential different data inputs, how that can then usefully be used within mathematical modeling frameworks going forwards, seems like a very very interesting problem to analyze, and also a challenging one at the same time. Yeah, I think it is. I think. As we move forward, I think data is going to become more and more available. I think we're in a society now where we've become more attuned to the idea that this information should just be out there. We obviously don't want personal information on individuals, but the more information we have on numbers is is always important. I think what is going to be a challenge is what do you do when you have different data streams that are in some way giving conflicting information? So... You mentioned wastewater. I think wastewater is going to be a really valuable source because it tells you a lot about what's happening in the wider community. But when you've got wastewater doing one thing and hospitalizations doing something different, how do you actually balance that? And the only way, I think, to balance that information is through a mathematical model that can take all these different factors into account. But I do hope as we move forward that that this type of information gets um, more dispersed into the community so that people can actually sort of look at this information firstly from a personally from a mathematical modeling point of view so i can make decisions or or provide advice what we think may happen in in the short term but also so that individuals can gauge their own risk and think about how they may want to modify their own behavior so i think data is going to be key as we move forward both in terms of pandemics, but also in terms of just infectious diseases. You may want to know, you know, what's the amount of flu in your local area for this winter or other infectious diseases. So I think that type of data and putting it out into the public domain in an anonymised form, I think is going to be very important as we move forward into the future. Thank you for all these answers, Matt. It's been very clear. And thank you for coming to Spider Presents. Thank you.
This is our news section, where we have a few updates on events happening in the research group. Firstly, congratulations to several advisor group members who have recently received a SPIMO award for modeling and data support. These awards have been given in recognition of those who made an exceptional contribution during the COVID-19 pandemic to the work of SPIMO outside of their usual work activity. Our next news item is that we have a new postdoc who has recently joined us in SPIDER. Alberto Torsello is working with Bridget Penman on the Springboard-funded project predicting infectious disease evolution in light of immune system diversity. The final update is that during the week of 19 to 23rd September 2022, several Spider Group members attended in person the 12th European Conference on Mathematical and Theoretical Biology, held in Heidelberg, Germany. The conference brought together researchers and students interested in mathematical modeling with applications to life sciences. The event was jointly organised by the European Society for Mathematical and Theoretical Biology, ESMTB, and the Society for Mathematical Biology, SMB. That wraps up our news section, and we will bring further updates from the group in our next episode of Spider Presents. Thanks for listening to this episode, and we hope you will join us again next time.